0: If we looked through this year, um, how do we connect with God? How do we grow closer to Him? How do we become deeper disciples of Jesus? Uh, one of the book in the New Testament really stands out, and uh, it's the book of Hebrews. And uh, we titled this series "More Than an Answer," really because one, it fits a lot of the the concerns we're going to talk about that the, the recipients of this book had. But even in our own life, difficult things happen. This world isn't a safe place. Not even by you know the the most uh, exaggerated use of that word, it is not safe at all. And it is difficult. Jesus said that our faith would sometimes would actually feel like it was a, a difficult walk up a narrow, windy path. And uh, and it's it takes sacrifice. It takes struggle. And there are times in our life, if we're honest, that we'll all ask the question, is it worth it? And we we look into our lives as well and we see these problems and oftentimes, you know, we won't blame God, but we'll say, is Jesus really enough to handle these things? These very real problems that I have problems in my home, problems at my job, problems with anxiety, problems with whatever is Jesus really able to answer these things or how about is Jesus really able to change me? Uh, There are times in our life that we look and we say, I've been struggling with the same thing forever, and I don't like that about me, and I seem so powerless. Is Jesus really the answer for that? Can he really change me? And this series, I, I think you're going to be incredibly encouraged. But the truth of God's word is that Jesus is not just an answer to the world's problems. He's not just an answer to our deepest needs. He's so much more than an answer. So today we're going to get into that, but before we do, of course, we want to do our memory verse, and I thought, what a great way to start a book than to memorize the very first first verse in that book, and it sets up, we're going to be preaching on this today, and uh, the memory verse comes to Hebrews 1.1, and it says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, and now in these final days He has spoken to us through His Son. This passage, if taken to heart, could have stopped um, every cult, if taken to heart. This is a powerful thing, so, so uh, make sure we set this to our memory this week, just go through it at least once a day, and then think about what does this mean, and uh, we'll talk just briefly about it this morning. Now, of course, we are starting a new series, and when we start a new series like this, which is exegetical, it means that we're going to the Bible, and we're going to go through an entire book. And six weeks, around so are going to have to get it just big things. But we want to have the context of the book. So to help us really understand, I mean, you can read Hebrews and get the message, but the context really gives it a lot more depth. And I'll, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. First thing we want to know about the book of Hoop, Hebrews is that when it was written. It was written uh, between 60 and 70 AD, all right, or 80, 60, and 70. It was written before the fall of Jerusalem. The temple still stood. Jesus had raised, the, the, a lot of the apostles had, had gone, died. The, uh, the, the missionary journeys, most of them had taken place. Uh, the church was growing in, in all parts of the Roman Empire. And, uh, but at the same time, there was still the temple. And the Jewish traditions and all those types of things, the legal system, all that kind of stuff was still happening. And this was written to whom? Hebrews. Hebrews. Right. But not just any Hebrews, not just like out there in general. It was written to a group of Hebrews that had a church in Rome. And this is important. And we'll talk about that in a second. Now, to understand why that's important, we understand that there was this emperor or a a Caesar and his name was Claudius. And Claudius was a crazy guy, as most of those um, the the uh, the Caesars were and uh, got kind of drunk with power a little bit, as most of them did. And he did something kind of crazy in the year uh, uh, A.D. 50. And what he did is he said there was this problem going on between the Jews and the synagogues, and it was creating an issue in the city of Rome. And the problem was that there was Christianity. And so some of the Jewish people were talking about the Messiah had come, and the others said we reject that, and it was creating friction. In fact, we read about this. um, uh, Well, actually, there was a a historian named Tacitus. He writes about this, and he says, listen, there was this guy named Christus (laughs) that caused all these problems. He apparently died in Jerusalem and came back or something, and now we have problems. Well, if you are the Caesar, if you are over all of Rome, you don't want to have problems. There was this thing that's called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Like you're gonna get along or you're gonna die. That was kind of the idea. As there was problems in these synagogues, what does he do? Well, he says, All right, if the Jews are fighting, then the Jews can leave. And Claudius has this edict and and, um, and he kicks them all out in eighty fifty. Okay? All the Jews have to leave Rome. Can you imagine? Now if you were the a, a non-Christian, non-Messianic Jew, how would you feel about the Messianic Jews? Probably not great, because you just got kicked out of your home because of what you thought. Now, if you were a Messianic Christian or Jew and and you got kicked out, then you would be very frustrated by this, right? Because now you got kicked out and all this sort of thing. It's like we're just telling good news that the Messiah has come, right? But but it created some friction in the Hebrew culture, right? Especially amongst those Roman Hebrews. Now they get kicked out. Aquila and Priscilla were two of these. We find out later on in the Book of Acts they meet with the Apostle um, Paul and uh, they accept Jesus, and it's pretty powerful. Well, Claudius was like most of the Caesars. He had a uh, um, a messed up family, right? And so what happens in his messed up family is uh, he's got he marries this woman, and she has a kid already. And uh, he's named Nero. And Nero grew up in all of the wealth of Rome and all this kind of stuff and, and had these, these issues and, uh, and wanted to have power, right? He was, and so what does Nero's mom do? Well, she wants her son to become Caesar. But Nero's not in the blood lineage of Claudius. But he's really next in line. And so she kills him. She kills her husband. So her 16-year-old son, named Nero, can become emperor. That's just messed up. But that's the way that it worked. So Nero becomes emperor. One of the things he does is he kills his mom. Thanks, mom. Now you die. And so he's emperor. Now he grows up. He starts pretty good. But then he also gets drunk with power. And Later on, he starts to do horrible things. He would dress up like a commoner and go out in the streets like, like thugs, and he would beat up Roman citizens with the, and have like his Roman guard that, uh, would, would basically protect him as he did these things. And he was just a thug, um, and he did these things. But one thing he didn't like is he didn't like the fact that Claudius had done certain things, so he reversed some of the stuff his stepdad did. One of the things he reversed is the fact that Claudius's edict that kicked Christians out. And so he or kicked Jews out. So now he says, okay, Jews are welcome to come back into Jerusalem or to, to Rome. So he said, okay, all the Jews can come back to Rome. And so they do. But what happened in those years is that only the Jewish Christians were kicked out with the rest of the Jews. But the rest of the Christians that were Gentile got to stay there. And so the church continued to grow in Rome under, these first few, uh, under the rest of, of Claudius' life. And so when these Jewish believers came back, They found themselves in a very Gentile-oriented church for the first time in human history. And it was a strange thing. In fact, Paul writes about this when he writes in Romans chapters 9 through 11, how do the Roman churches get along? How do you reconcile the difference between Jewish and Gentile believers? And he talks about, listen, we are all the same in Christ. But he had those three amazing chapters which are grouped together because of this issue. Well, what we find is that you couldn't have a church back then because Christianity was still against the law. It was still, you were very persecuted, things like this. They couldn't just build a building. And so these churches oftentimes met in houses. And they would be more like, uh, there were smaller groups. They still had elders, pastors, things like this. But there were smaller groups, and they met in these houses. And we find that there was one that was a group of Hebrew believers. And uh, they, and this is who this, this little house church is, what this letter is written to. Now, these believers, these Hebrew believers, come back to, they have their faith. It was their Messiah. They even lost their homes over this. They come back and feel like maybe we don't fully fit in. They've already suffered a lot for their faith. In fact, Hebrews 10 uh, talks about this. This um, The writer says, think back to those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you and you accepted it with joy, you knew there were better things waiting for you that would last forever. Doesn't that make that passage a little bit more like this is what they, they really suffered these things. That's when. And and the writer reminds them of that because there's another suffering that they're facing now. You see this guy, he, Nero, he was a nut. And he did all kinds of bad things. Well, Rome caught on fire. And uh, and uh, Caesar becomes uh, Nero becomes Caesar in, in AD 59. And AD 64, Rome burns. So you're not very many years later. Like he gets into power. And he's in his early 20s. And Rome catches on fire. And, of course, people, you know, the legend is that he fiddled or whatever while Rome burned. We don't really know if that happened. But... but The thing is, is if you went to Rome in AD 64 and you walked around the streets and you asked, who's responsible for this? Any Roman would tell you Nero. Nero did this to us. He was not popular. And Nero knew this. He had a populist uprising at his doorstep. The people hated him for good reason. And so what what does he do? Well, he does what most people do. uh, If you have uh, two toddlers or whatever and one of them knows they're in trouble, what are they going to do? They're going to blame the other one. Like we blame the dog sometimes when he does something. You you find a scapegoat. And Nero, remember that there was a scapegoat out there and he decided to pick Christians to be his scapegoat for this. In fact... um, In uh, Tacitus writes in his Histories of Rome, he wasn't a Christian, he was just a Roman historian. And his 15th book, uh, in the 44th chapter of it, he says, uh, this is what he writes. Consequently, to get rid of this report, which is that Nero burned round Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite of tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace, Christus, From whom the name had its origin, had suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. I love how he talks about his own country. That report is that Jesus rose from the dead. And people in Rome were believing this and they were coming to Jesus in mass. It says, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. So they arrested people, they tortured them, and they said, Tell us who else is a Christian. When they said, a lot of other people were now arrested. And then it says, not so much much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. That's what they were fired for, or they were arrested for. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered uh, with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or doomed to the flames and burnt. To serve as nightly illuminations when the daylight had expired, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus when he mingled with the people in the dress of the charioteer and stood aloft on a car. So they killed the Christians in the, in the Colosseum, and he took part in this. It says, Even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion For it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but the glut of one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. This is amazing. This was the persecution that these Hebrew Christians were facing now. They were kicked out once. They were beaten and lost everything they owned once. They come back. They find themselves in this house, church. Just a few years later, this horrible persecution takes place. I mean, it is... Beyond our realm of of imagining how bad and how fearful it was to be a Christian at that time meant that everyone you knew would disassociate themselves from you because their fear was you would get arrested and then you would get arrested because of, of association. And if you were a Hebrew Christian, a Jewish Christian, it was that much worse because now even your own countrymen, they were upset with you, right? They got kicked out once because of you. They were doubly abandoned, And how hard and frustrating and scary it must have been at that time. And this book was written. Who was the author? Well, we don't know. It wasn't written. Uh, The the author didn't write his name. Why not? Well, think about it. If this letter got intercepted. And the author put his name down there. And said, this is whom I'm writing this to. Guess who's going to get arrested and tortured and killed? The church there. The author. This was... This was scary things. Now, a lot of people look at Hebrews and say, it makes sense to us that Paul most likely was the author. Why? There were some things in there. Um, his theology is very similar. His deep knowledge of the Old Testament and how Jesus, the Messiah, uh, fits into that and his descriptions of this. His argumentation is very similar, language. Uh, some other things, like he mentions Timothy by name at the very end, which tells you what kind of man Timothy was, how brave Timothy was to then go right into the midst of this and he mentions him by name, but why would he not? But usually Paul begins his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to you guys. But that wasn't in there because of the intensity of the persecution. This was a letter written to people that were living on a razor's edge. And they're wondering to themselves, as they see everything that they think about God being put to the test, and they, and they see that there is a real cost to their faith. They're wondering, should I hold on? For these Jewish Christians, it would be very easy for them at that time to say, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I can go back to becoming a Jew. The temple still stands. They're still doing the sacrifices, right? There are still rabbis and priests and all those kinds of things. I can just go back. Because Jesus may not be the answer to my problem right now. He might be the problem. And so the author writes this book to this group of Christians in the midst of this and says, you know what, Jesus is more than your answer. You stick with him. So let's get to that first beginning of this book. His first argument that the that the author makes is, uh, I think, is pretty cool. Is that Jesus is God's best and last word. Right? God's done talking. He said this. We all memorized it long ago, many times and in many ways to our ancestors. God spoke many times, many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, and now in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And we look at that first part and we recognize that that uh, He's saying, "Listen to the Hebrew Christians." This is nothing new, All right, long ago. God has a history of speaking to people. He wants to be known. He's revealing himself, right? And how has God historically spoken? Well, he spoke many times in many ways, right? There were lots of different ways that God spoke. He did miracles. He sent people, prophets and messengers, things like this. He, he had the scriptures written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God spoke many times in many ways, but it wasn't just through anyone, it was through the prophets. God set different people aside and said, I have a message for for my people, and I'm going to say it through you. And this is how God works. And so, but he says, that's how it was. But now he says, in these last days, these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. These final days, there is no more to come, there are no more prophets. Sorry, Muhammad. There are no more prophets. God's speaking now. This, the last, this is the last movement of history. How powerful, how amazing. These final days. And God does one up. In the past, he spoke to their ancestors through prophets. But now he speaks something much better, much clearer. He speaks through his very own son, You see the superiority of Christ in this message. There is, God doesn't need to speak anymore. He started to reveal himself clearer and clearer and clearer, and now he has spoken to us very clearly with his very self, his own son, here. There is nothing better. Can you imagine a greater messenger to God to tell us what does God want to say? Before he had an intermediary. Now he comes face to face, toe to toe with humanity and says, this is who I am. He is the, ba- the best and the last word. And he's saying to these, these Hebrew Christians, why would you go back to the message of the ancestors through the prophets when we have God himself standing who tells us who he is? There, isn't, there is no better message than Jesus. But then he goes on for these next couple verses and he talks about how Jesus is superior, not just kind of superior, but superior to everything and anything. Right. He is just flat out superior. And he goes and he makes several arguments for this. And the first one is this. He says he is the heir of all things. He says God promised everything to the son as his inheritance. So guess what? Jesus owns it. I mean, when it says everything, it means everything, and that includes Nero, and that includes all the power of Rome, and that includes the future and the past. That includes all things. That includes the temple, by the way. It includes all things. Jesus owns it, and that was by God's goodwill. So who can you go to that is better than the owner? Because anybody else is just somebody that's a steward at best, and he says, God promised everything to the Son's inheritance. He owns us all. But there's a reason for that because He is the maker of all things. He didn't just get things legally. You've ever met somebody who, who inherited a lot of wealth or something like this? And it's theirs. It's very much theirs. Now they can command it. But there's something, another step, when somebody builds it, right? They made this. They know it intimately. But well, it is their creation. And it says, through the sun, he created the universe. And So when you think back to what we talked about in Genesis, when it said God spoke and he said, let there be light, guess who was the word that made the light? You see, Jesus is powerful. And I think oftentimes we think of, our, of Jesus as this, this very meek and mild and timid and beat up Prophet. And there was a short period where where Jesus came to be meek and mild, and he got beat up for our sake. But his identity is so much more than that. If we had a picture of who Jesus really is, we would be like John on the island of Patmos, who would fall dead as we see him in his glory. He created the universe. He is superior to all others. No one else can say, I made it. No one else has that amount of power or wisdom he is the Maker. Not only that, He says He is the perfect revelation of God. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God is what it says. If you want to know who God is like, you don't have to wonder. We're not like a religion in the dark that says, okay, maybe God is like this or I feel God is like this. Jesus came, put on flesh, spoke. Language that we could understand lived with us and showed us the very character and nature of God. Jesus even said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We don't have to wonder who is God like. What is is he about? What does he want? Jesus spoke very plainly and showed us very clearly who God is. There is no no room for, for wonder or interpretation in that. Jesus showed us. He is superior in all ways. So why would you go back to a religion that tells you that if you do these things, you might get close enough to get a glimpse of an idea of who God might be? Why wouldn't you just go to the God himself? He is also superior in that he wields the full power of God. Not only does he have the full character of God, he has all the power. It says, and he sustains everything by his, the mighty power of His command sustains everything. That's you and me, by the way. That's the Hebrew church in the midst of persecution. That are our brothers and sisters right now in Iraq that are under persecution. He sustains them and the church will stand. And he sustains us. He sustains all things. And this is the part I think is amazing. Even at this time, he sustains the wicked. The unrepentant, those ISIS fighters, they exist only by the mercy of of a powerful and loving God. But they are not outside of his control. And we think this Nero was not outside of the power of God. Though he thought himself to be a God, and though he wielded the armies of Rome, guess who has more power than that? It was our Jesus. He is superior. And always, and if that wasn't enough, I love this, he's already won. I mean, why would we go back to a God that says, to a religion that says, okay, there is a promise coming when we have the promise kept. It says when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Think about that. When you sit down, you are done. You ever have one of those days you go to the office, or you go to work or whatever and you work real hard and then you like you get the work done and you go home and what do you do? You find that wonderful comfy chair, that place of honor and you sit down because it is finished. And isn't that what Jesus said when he was on the cross, right before he breathed his last and says, "I'm done. I did it." He sat down. The battle's done. The work is done. There is nothing left to do. The, the battles... I mean, think about this. Why go back? Why abandon that? The God who one, The one. The God who says, listen, you are saved. I don't care what Nero does. I don't care what the world does. I don't care how hard life gets. You win. You have a hope. No one can take that away from you. You get a brand new body. There's a brand new world coming. It's already done. Our sins are forgiven forgiven. They are forgiven. Not that they will be forgiven. They are forgiven. They have been paid for at a very high price. We have been redeemed. Not we will be redeemed. We are. That's why the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? God couldn't dwell within corrupt temples, but He purifies us. And the Holy Spirit has fellowship with us. It is finished. Why would on earth Would we abandon that because of temporary circumstances by people and and things that seem so overwhelming? We remember that Jesus has overcome. He is the victor. And there is no one, there is nothing that can topple him from his throne. That's powerful. So we look at this book that we're going to go through. And I think it's so important as we... As we look at this, this, this incredible book of Hebrews and say, why was it written? Who was it written to? And what is, who is this Jesus? To understand, this is not a book about giving you a defense of your faith. It's a book that reminds us who it is we serve. Because the answer to our problems, it truly is Jesus. But he's so much more than that. He's not just my Savior. He is the God of the universe. He is the creator. He is the owner of all things. He is the eternal victor. And he deserves everything, doesn't he? Now, as I ask the worship team to come up and we bring this, this message time to a close, there are some things that we can do. And I ask you to take out your connection cards. Um, because. The last thing we ever want to do is to come before God's holy word, his scripture that reveals to us who Christ is and to come away unchanged. That would be such a waste. But how do you respond to the fact that we have this God, this powerful God, this Jesus who loves us so much, who came for us, who who told us exactly what God wants? What do we do? Well, the first thing I think this week you can do is maybe memorize Hebrews one one. Recognize you don't need to keep searching if you've been searching your whole life for a message from God, what does God want from you? What does God want to do in you or through you? Who is, who is God? That has been answered. Jesus came. He is God's last and final word. We don't need to look for a new prophet or new some fancy book or, or some new teaching out there. Jesus is it. And He is more than enough. So maybe to memorize that, meditate upon that passage. That God is... He's, he's spoken very clearly so that we could be restored to him. How about this? Maybe it's to read the book of Hebrews. You say, Aaron, why not just like the first chapter? Why? Get the context. Read it. Read it more than once. Right? It's not terribly long. You can do it in, in a sitting. It was, it was actually a letter that was written to be, or read, so we can read it in a sitting. But see the big themes. What is, what is this author trying to convey? What is the Holy Spirit trying to say to the church? And read it through this week and get the big picture as you fly over it. Don't get stuck down in the weeds, right? But just read it this week and say, what is God's message? Because I know what? This is, a very, <laughs> this is a very timely message for the church today, isn't it? Maybe that's what you do this week. How about this? Maybe it's a join a life group. You know, some of our life groups are going to be studying Hebrews. Others got some other really cool things happening. But, you know, in this book, amidst the terrible persecution... Is where you find that passage that says, don't neglect the meeting together as some in the habit of doing. Now, that wasn't because they had a ball game that day or because it was difficult to wake up or it was just not convenient the weather wasn't good. It's because if they showed up and met together as a group, there was a good chance that they were going to get tortured to death and the people that they loved were going to be tortured to death. Right? There, was a, there was a price to this, but fellowship is so important to the faith. We are called a body, and a dismembered body doesn't do a whole lot. And maybe to connect with the body... It's what you need to do. And one great way to do that is to find a smaller group of believers that you can get to know and study the Word with. Maybe that's what you need to do this week. If you check that, we'll be in contact with you and help you find a group that you can connect with. Or how about this? Maybe it's to attend the next five weeks of this series. Maybe in your own life, you know, whatever you either would love to know for why it is that we follow Jesus with such reverence and awe. Why do we have such confident assurance of the hope that he has given us? Maybe, that's you, maybe you need some encouragement in your faith. Or maybe life's been difficult and you've been wondering yourself, man, is Jesus really enough? I encourage you to come. To say, you know, I'm going to be here these next five weeks. I'm going to connect with God. I'm going to invest this time in him and growing my spirit. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's the commitment you're going to make. And maybe there's something else, another commitment that you have. It uh, doesn't matter what it is. Write it down for me. Why? So I can pray for you. I will pray as I do every week. Whatever commitments you make so that God will help you and that. Maybe there's some other commitment that you need to make or some other decision. Maybe there's a prayer that you would like us to bring before God throughout this week on your behalf. We would love to do that for you. Whatever your decision is or whatever your commitments are or your prayer requests, I encourage you to put that on there. Green connection card now. In a couple of seconds, we're going to take our offering. And as we take our tithes and our offerings, I encourage you to drop uh, this also into the basket as well as another offering for yourself to God. So let's pray for this and our tithes. Let's do that now.